Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to today's uh, Chess Journal Club webinar. I am Alice Gallo. I'm an intensivist at Mayo Clinic, and I'm one of the editors for social media for the Chess Journal. And I'm joined today in this webinar as a co-host in this webinar by my good friend, Dr. Paul. Dr. Paul. Thanks, Alice. Guys, my name is Viren. I am an intensivist at Krauss Health, and I'm one of the APDs for Palm Crit Fellowship at SUNY Upstate. So clearly I love education and in a similar role as Alice, I'm here uh, and happy to welcome our uh, panelists today. So we're gonna go ahead with uh, introductions. Dr. Joding. Hi, I'm Michael Joding. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician at the University of Michigan. And Dr. Valbuena. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having us. Uh, my name is Valeria Valbuena, and I'm a general surgery resident um, at the University of Michigan and a po uh, postdoctoral researcher with the National Clinician Scholars Program. And Alice and I have no conflicts of interest. Um, what about our panelists? Sadly, I don't. I received some grant funding from the NIH and the Department of Defense. I hope it's for cool stuff. All right, Alice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We're going to be talking about uh, the paper on racial bias and false oximetry in patients about to undergo ECMO. And my first question for the panelists will be: uh, What was what was the existing data, and what prompted you to to investigate uh, false oximetry in patients about to undergo ECMO? Um, I will I will start. I might tie it up to my co-author just because Dr. Schoding was the uh, the first author and the the very first publication that we had over the in the last like three years. It turns out that the pulse oximetry stories it's it has spanned many many decades. Um, initially, I became I'm a surgery resident. Uh, I became interested on on this topic after having a number of conversations with um, my my mentor, Dr. Jackie Washington, who is a pulmonary critical care um, uh, physician and who had been working on um, uh, the investigations about pulse oximetry racial bias with Dr. Schroding and our group here at Michigan. Um, and I think that the so the extension of the investigation to critical care patients was as a as um, a uh, not a secondary uh, but as a tie-on to the first study which was conducted um, uh, by Dr. Joding uh, and colleagues and it it really was aimed to address some of the limitations both of that study but also of the historical data in terms of being able to extend some of these findings or, or investigate the occurrence of, of this phenomena in a more critically ill population making sure that we were able to expand those findings beyond sort of this black and white that dichotomy patient population, and then also exploring, uh, finding opportunities to explore um, the full range of SpO2, so investigating whether or not the bias, those findings of uh, higher rates of occult hypoxemia, which we're going to be discussing today, extended to the rest of the SpO2 range. But I, I think that one of my favorite stories and one that I always like bring about is one that that I think Mike, Dr. Joding tells very well, which is his original findings when during the first wave of the pandemic taking care of patients at our institution. So Mike, maybe you can uh, share a little bit with the uh, with the rest of the uh, of the audience about that and in the the very first uh, study and how how did you become interested on it? Yeah. So thank you, and and so I'll just tell this briefly. You know, <clears throat> lots of stuff happened uh, at the during the first wave of the pandemic, and one of the things that happened at Michigan 
is that we created this special COVID wing where all the COVID patients were cared for together. And as it happened, Ann Arbor, Michigan is near Detroit and Detroit hospitals were completely overwhelmed. And so we were seeing a lot of transfers of patients from Detroit hospitals to Michigan. And as a consequence, the demographics of our COVID population in the first wave were strikingly different than, than prior with a much higher prevalence of black patients than, than we're typically used to. And so, you know, we were caring for these patients on our COVID wing and just like anecdotally seeing these weird things with the pulse oximeter and the ABG that we hadn't seen before. Uh, and, you know, I saw and a couple of my colleagues saw, saw it and we had no idea what, what was going on. And in fact, at the beginning, we thought it was something that was COVID related. We thought, gosh, maybe COVID is causing this weird discrepancy in the pulse oximeter. And that's actually sort of what, where I was thinking. But then, you know, sort of with, at the perfect moment, this woman, Amy Moran Thompson, who is a anthropologist at MIT, started digging into the pulse oximeter because the pulse oximeter had become such a quintessential tool for, for COVID-19 patients. It was like, everyone's buying a pulse oximeter at home. What's going on with this pulse oximeter? And so this, this woman, Amy Moran Thompson, did some digging into this old literature from 1990s, mid-2000s, describing you know, basically performance difference in pulse oximeter based on skin pigment. And, you know, we read that and it was sort of like uh, there was this aha moment that like what we were seeing at the bedside wasn't COVID-19 related. It was the fact that like at Michigan, we were caring for this diverse population of patients that we weren't used to seeing. And so we were seeing this difference. And so anyway, that's basically the sort of the motivation um, for, for, for our original paper, which was that like there's something going on here that we want to quantify uh, with data. Yeah, and I definitely so that at that time, so I am I'm a research resident right now. I'm finishing my post my uh, postdoctoral fellowship, and at the time of the first wave of the pandemic, I was I was still clinical and we were removed from our surgical services and i i was in in this and our surgical side of the of the covid icu for two and a half months and and what we did was that we we put just about everybody on ECMO. Like I, I mean, it's very much a Michigan thing. Uh, we started here, but it also like we have like a pretty robust referral network throughout the state to be uh, taking care of a lot of the patients. And I, I, I was just this, like it was, it was very, it was striking to see how many patients, how many ECMO evaluations we were doing every day, how many more patients I had in my, you know, I spend a month in, in the surgical ICU every year of my training and how many more patients we had in the surgical ICU who were, belonged to uh, uh, ethnic and racial minorities. It was really striking for me because training here, um, uh, it, there is definitely a different demographic of patients just by the nature of our, uh, of our location, but also sort of like our referral patterns that comes and gets routine care here at Michigan. And so I think that when they, um, when my mentor, Dr. Washington, brought, brought up this thought of like, well, we have these findings on, you know, uh, uh, an intensive care population, population that have been on supplemental oxygen, which is 
the study population for um, the first study. And we started talking about patients on ECMO and sort of the opportunities to analyze and figure out if that's it was extending to the uh, 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 patient population and severe respiratory failure. I was very interested, uh, especially since we had seen so much of that. I saw so much of that during my clinical time. Um, but then to go back to the to the first part of that question, Dr. Gallo, about what had been known before, Dr. Schoening mentioned a little bit of, about that. So some of the previous studies had mostly incorporated, including the ones from back in like the 1990s, had uh, mostly done comparisons between patients who self-identified as black or white. Um, and both in the study from the New England Journal of Medicine that Dr. Schoening was al alluding to, but also the previous the historical studies that were included um, as part of this like larger investigation by Dr. Morant uh, Thomas, they all had like a range, patients that had a range of clinical and critical uh, clinical illnesses, everything from being just like, you know, this were prospective studies on like healthy volunteers to uh, being sick to not being very sick. And so there was no necessarily, uh, necessarily a control for uh, severity of disease. And then there wasn't any data on the uh, on our, what we eventually decided uh, to um, uh, select that was our, was our primary outcome for the study, which was a call hypoxemia. We didn't, and uh, the original study, we very they very intentionally selected this range of clinical interest for SpO2 from from um, uh, 92 to 96% uh, uh, O2. And, but we had in, investigated sort of the higher range um, of SPO2 to see if there was any findings of a hypoxemia or any uh, racial disparities on measurements at that end. Um, and of course, the previous studies had used mostly time stamp. Uh, and by previous studies, I mean Dr. Schoding's studies. Dr. Schoding's studies had used time stamp and stamped electronic data that had necessarily been uh, confirmed by a clinician. And so those were some of the gaps in knowledge from the previous literature that we were aiming to address in this study. That being said, like we have known that the pulse oximeter does not work as well on patients of darker skin color for about 30 years. The original pulse oximeter racial bias study was by Dr. Gibran and Thomas, like back in the 1990s when they first described the, um, the, uh, the phenomenon. So every 10 years, you know, we sort of come back to this discussion and I'm hoping this is probably the last time um, that we do so. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing all this background with us. This is it's fascinating, and and yes, when I was when I was reading your your paper preparing for today, I was like, oh yeah, it looks like every 10, 15 years we have something like this comes up. It's fascinating. And um, tell us tell us when again you already started talking about this, but what do you believe for for us clinicians? What's the why is it so important for us to address um, these biases, taking care for patients in the ICU who need ECMO, and like you mentioned, the difference between someone being sick and being hypoxic as like someone saying, oh, I am of Hispanic origin and here's my normal pulse oximetry, you know? What's what's the importance clinically? Um, thank you for that question, Dr. Gallo. So I think that just then like sort of 30,000 foot view of like, why does this matter? And it's that I think that we have all been like trained and continue to practice medicine under like fairly, fairly st like, strict confines of like being of like non-maleficence and like, knowing that this equipment, we, we work within constraints of the system. Nothing is perfect. Nothing that we do is perfect. No diagnostic tools, no treatment it is, but we work within like the constraints of the system, knowing limitations and being able to adapt to them so that we're not harming patients. And I think that the most important, the, the, the number one reason that we should be caring about this is that we 
are we can we're hardly pressed to continue using a device that does not work as well in a particular group of patients making decisions like we have changed practice over the last 30 years especially on how many, how many blood gases we obtain for patients. We're using pulse oximetry every single day to make clinical decisions, so small clinical decisions from whether or not this patient might need, you know, a little supplemental oxygen on the floors to whether or not they're the compensating while, you know, the battling, battle pneumonia, uh, a bad viral pneumonia need to go on ECMO. And that's sort of like on the, on the very severe spectrum of things like you know, like when we are thinking about like rationalization of care and who's going to get an ECMO or not, but this matters for everybody. And honestly, like, I don't think that tolerating that degree, even if it's a small of discrepancy on a device that we use as much as this, uh, is something that we can really like, like, reconcile within the health of medicine that we can actually do. And so I think that is the one reason that we really need to, both for this and other like racialized medical technology. For the ECMO patient, for ECMO patients, I do think that the dynamic, there's a lot of dynamic decision-making that is made um, uh, on like ECMO decisions. And many of you in this call have been involved with those decisions. And I think that it's just really important to think about just how like, extreme of a care, like man, like a, a treatment like management modality it is. And that like, you know, when it did, when we only had so many machines and, you know, hopefully we're never in that, that spot again, but like ECMO is not a treatment that you can just, it's not a, it's not a nasal cannula. And when it, when it mattered, we made decisions of who got it first and hopefully we're not in that spot again, but like odds are that we will be. And in a similar, in a similar way, there are other treatments that are based. There's a lot of things that we, that we do and we provide for patients that are based on um, um, SPO2 thresholds. And so you can see that even for like, even just for the nasal cannula, some patients might be, might be getting them a lot earlier than others. And for ECMO patients, it seemed like sort of like the most the most uh, uh, like black and white decision, like, will you go on ECMO or will you not? Eventually all the patients in our study did, but I can imagine patients being delayed in identification of how severe uh, their uh, hypoxemia was, and then sort of losing some of that like key window for initiation of extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So that's why I think that it matters, particularly for our severe respiratory failure population, for the ones that we're considering for advanced therapy. Dr. Schroding, do you do you have anything else to add? Yeah, I mean, I, I think w wonderful what uh, Val described. You know, the scope of this is just at such a scale. I mean, you think about pulse oximeters as a device, like, you know, we have the blood pressure cuff. It's probably the most common medical device that's used. And then I, I think probably pulse oximeter is second. So, you know, just you know, the scope of this device and the impact that it has in, in care decision is so significant that what, what was said about, okay, it's a small error, you know, you know, it's a couple of percentage points, but when you're thinking about the scale of how that error can mag magnify, it's, 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 it's pretty striking. Um, and so that, that I think is why this matters. Absolutely matters. Absolutely. And, and I completely agree. I, I think the scale, the magnitude and what what uh, Dr. Valbuena just said is, again, like we're making decisions based on a pulse oximetry multiple times a day as either either caring for patients on the floor or or um, ICU. And even in for, for those of us who do clinic in pulmonary, 
will, it will determine who goes to the hospital, who is sent to the hospital or not, who will start oxygen on or not. It's, it's very, very significant. So thank you so much for sharing um, your thoughts on this so far. And um, we're gonna go a little bit more into your particular study, uh, it's time. Uh, so share with us the methodology on how your study was done and reasonings behind the methodology you chose and um, a little bit about on inclusion and exclusion criteria, if you can. Absolutely. So uh, so this was a retrospective cohort study, uh, and, and I will start by just clearly stating what our research question was uh, based on some of those uh, gaps in knowledge that I had highlighted before. We asked, does the pulse oximeter less effectively detect arterial hypoxemia in Black, Hispanic, and under Asian patients compared to white patients, so that was our reference category, um, in patients in respiratory failure who are about to initiate ECMO. So these are patients within that six hour window of evaluation where we have information for. And we decided to use uh, the extracorporeal life support organization database. So ELSA database, for those of you who are, I'm, I'm sure the majority of you are, are familiar with it. But they collect fairly granular data on patients who are undergoing uh, just extracorporeal life support, BBN, BA, ECMO in centers of around the world. And so we included patients, the inclusion criteria for the study were patients 18 years or older who were uh, diagnosed with either ARDS or COVID-19 during the study period and who were placed on ECMO eventually for management of their respiratory failure uh, between about January of 2019 and July of 2020. So we had, that was our study period. Um, of note, we did include, uh, we excluded all patients uh, that had any relevant missing data for our analysis and two of the things that we were looking for is like, do we have this naturally occurring pairs of uh, uh, SpO2 and SaO2? And for that, we use case-wise deletion. And then, of course, some of these patients were underwent multiple rounds of ECMO. And so patient, that's something that we can see from the database. So patients that had um, second and third ECMO runs were removed. And that was in a, a large that was in a large portion of uh, of our cohort. Um, so we we define our primary outcome as the, this rate of a cold hypoxemia that we continue to talk about across patients of different races and ethnicities. And um, uh, we define a cold hypoxemia originally. Dr. Schoding defined it as an SpO2 of uh, of less than equal to 88 percent, despite having an SpO2 falling pulse oximetry reading between 92 and 96. And then for this particular study, we also set up a secondary outcome to investigate that upper range of the SPO2 um, uh, range. And so we, um, we looked at the rates of a cold hypoxemia, uh, defining that a cold, hypoxemia, a cold hypoxemia differently. So an SAO2 of uh, less than equal to 88 when SPO2 measurements were greater than 96, uh, greater than equal to 96, so that 96 to 100 range. Um, our exposure, of course, was, was race and ethnicity as they defined it at the ECMO Center and inputted into the ELSA database by the ADIDA management ma managers. And they actually included a number of racial and ethnic groups. We had, again, we only studied Asian, Black, Hispanic, and white patients because they had the, um, uh, the number of patients. Uh, we, we did like a case per event framework to select which groups had enough patients to detect the event. Local hypoxemia is not a super common event, even in the, in the 
a critically ill population, but there were also information for Middle Eastern or African Native American patients in smaller groups that were excluded. Um, and, and I think one of the questions that is always brought up is like, wh- how was this information of the blood gas and the pulse oximeter obtained? And this is one of the great uh, advantages of using the ELSO database is that they actually like all of this in pre-ECMO pre and post-ECMO information is entered in a very, very um, a rigorous manner. And so they pre-act more arterial blood gas value for each patient corresponded to ABGs. You know, you get a multiple ABGs on a patient that is decompensated enough to need ECMO. But for this, um, for this patients, they had to be drawn prior to the start of ECMO. They had to be drawn no more than six hours before ECMO was started. So they were in that critical window. And if there were multiple arterial blood gases drawn in that six hour window, which is the case for many patients, the one that was closest to the, like when the circuit was started was the one that was reported in the database. And so that's sort of how we, we handled some, some of those key data points. Um, our initial outcome was uh, this unadjusted rate of a cold hypoxemia that we, we um, uh, calculated using just chi-square tests. And then we also ran a multivariable um, uh, logistic regression um, for each race and ethnicity and compare them to um, a patients that identified as, were identified as white to examine that relationship between the variables and the odds of a cold hypoxemia. Um, uh, one thing that we're going to talk about too is how we assess like uh, this very important parameters when we're comparing two different tests, sort of measuring the same thing. So a uh, Blenheimann analysis, which anal- analyzes parameters of bias, precision, limits of agreements, and accuracy. This arms uh, a value that we will talk about later during during the journal club, which is actually something that the FDA looks at in terms of of what is like the tolerable amount of uh, of error between or difference between two tests. And we will look at some of those plots today. So that was sort of like the main takeaways of our study design. Fascinating. So based on a very rigorous database, um, you found this, um, the fact that black patients have more occult hypoxemia than white patients when they're about to undergo ECMO. So tell us more about what you found and what are the ramifications of this main finding of yeah, absolutely. Maybe so. So you can see the our cohort creation diagram here. We had data from 324 centers, so pretty widespread. Uh, a lot. So one of the limitations we'll talk about, and most of them are academic centers. We're not doing ECMO out in like many places in the community. Um, it started with over 3,000 records and ended up with 372 patients in the final cohort that sort of met all of this criteria. They belong to one of these racial ethnic groups with enough patients to detect the event. Uh, they had complete pairs for SAO2 and SPO2, and they, they had undergone a single ECMO run. Uh, maybe if you can, Dr. Gallo, if you can move into our demographics table um, for the cohort um, table. Yep, yep. So we had we had about 253 men and 119 women, uh, so a reasonable representation between uh, uh, genders. And the racial breakdown um, was very similar to the one uh, published in other studies. So 186 uh, white patients and 51 black patients, 70 Hispanic patients, 65 Asian patients. And it was nice that for the minor, um, for the groups that were being compared against uh, uh, white, uh, white patients, we sort of have similar numbers. Um, and then for the results of our analysis, we, maybe we can look at that figure, uh, figure one, um, our, um, our plots. Yes. 
um, not that one, but the um, uh, the uh, prevalence of a cold hypoxemia one, the bar graph. Yep, great. So these are the results of our analysis where we compare the unadjusted rate of a cold hypoxemia between patients of different races uh, using chi-square tests. And that's what's showing this graph. So the bar graph represents the results in the x-axis we have raised. And in the y-axis, we have the percent of patients in each group with a cold hypoxemia. And the rate of pre-ECMO cold hypoxemia was about 10.2 for those 186 white patients and 21.5, so almost double uh, for the 51 black patients in the study um, of note the, that, that the rate of alcohol hypoxemia was comparable uh, for Hispanic and Asian patients in the study, uh, compar comparable to that one of white patients, so 8.6 and 9.2 respectively. And you can see that difference in the, in the bar graph. And uh, of course, we also ran our logistic regression that we adjusted for uh, the couple of data items that we had available. So we ad adjusted it for sex and SPO2. Uh, and noted that the black patients with respiratory failure in our study um, had a statistically significant higher risk of a cold hypoxemia uh, with an odds ratio of about 2.57 compared to white patients. And, and of course, those results were similar to the ones that Dr. Schoding had presented in his New England Journal of Medicine paper. Um, we did not notice a statistically significant difference for Hispanic or Asian patients in our study. And, and that was our, our primary outcome. We did study that. They have that secondary outcome looking at that higher end of the SpO2 range. And that was one of the most interesting parts, I think, from the study, for at least for me, was that was very surprising to me, is that when we evaluated, and we don't have a figure for that, we, uh, but I will tell you about the results. When we looked at the higher end of the range and saw and looked to whether or not there was a difference or a cold hypoxemia um, a measurement bias at that end. Black patients had, we ran a regression for it, had a, a, about three and a half times the odds of a cold hypoxemia on the 96 to 100% SpO2 range complete compared to white patients. And that is a patient that is in your ICU, intubated, maybe prone with 100%, like, marking 100% on the pulse oximeter and who might be, um, who might be uh, um, uh, actually like uh, uh, hypoxemic. And that was, that was statistically significant. Um, so those are some of, uh, some of our results. And then maybe I can just make a, a quick comment on um, our bland element analysis. And so if we go back to that, the composite figure, Dr. Gallo, yeah. Um, so again, this this was um, this was an analysis of bias precision uh, and limits of agreement. And again, just for a little bit of background for the audience, so the, a bland element analysis was originally designed to compare two measurement modalities, two things that are measuring the same, like the same thing. So let's say two tests in this case arterial blood gas and pulse oximeter that are mesh trained to approximate arterial um, uh, the uh, oxygen content, arterial oxygen content. And the, the modalities or the the um, uh, the design for the test is that it usually plots, it's this blend alma plot, and it plots for every single point, they plot what the result was from one test or another one. And then you can see sort of the distribution of those across that line of no bias. And some of these parameters, so the um, the mean difference between SpO2 and SAO2 is what they call the bias. And you usually want it to be as low as possible. In our case, the one for the bias for the entire range, you can see, maybe we can go to that, uh, to the table, Dr. Gallo, the one that has um, uh, the bias values. Yep. 
So for the entire group, we we ran this analysis for the entire cohort. And actually, of no, this wasn't just for this 300 and something patients that we did our primary um, our cohypoxemia analysis for. We looked at everybody that had an available pair from those 3,000 um, uh, or so, 3,500 or so patients. And the average bias for the cohort was about 0.6. Uh, with a standard deviation of 7.5, and that's what they call precision. The limits of agreement are those, like almost like this confidence intervals in between that uh, uh, measurement of bias. But the interesting thing, and what I, what I think that I I want to focus your attention on, is this root mean square error, which is this value um, that is reported at the bottom um, row of the table. Um, and this is a measurement of how so you want that value to be as small as possible. That's going to be a, a that's that is a value without getting too much into the mechanics of it. Of how much how much different the two tests actually are, and so the FDA actually calls for a room in, an arms of about three two to three. So that's how different the pulse oximeter gets to be from the uh, arterial blood gas for it to be approved. And if you you can see that for the uh, entire cohort it was about seven point five, and the um, room mean square error for white patients in the cohort was about similar to the one in the cord. Um, but then when you look at the root mean square error for black patients, it's 10.4. So it's, uh, it's quite larger, um, uh, noting that the test is not working. The two tests are not correlating as well for the black patients in the cohort. Um, and so you see this three point difference, um, which I think is like, it's hard to, um, uh, to ignore. So, so those are the main highlights of our results. Uh, and I'll just say, just two more, two more things quickly. You know, when you look at table two and you're a clinician and you're like, this bias is 0.3 in whites, 1.7 in blacks. It doesn't seem that different, right? Like you, you wouldn't sort of appreciate that this is meaningfully different. And, you know, in, for, for a long time, I think that was sort of everyone's opinion that like, well, oh, this is small. It's probably not that different. So I think like what we do differently in, in some of these analyses that we performed is, is really try to think about it from the perspective of the bedside clinician. Like, how do I use the pulse oximeter in practice? Well, I use the pulse oximeter in practice by confirming that the pulse oximeter is, is in this narrow range, which I think is safe. And so that's the reason why our analysis really focused on this sort of range, you know, 92 to 96%. Or 92 and above. And so, you know, sort of framing this measurement problem in that different way, I think was sort of a key difference between, you know, this work and, and a lot of the prior work. Because, you know, you look at table two, you're like, mm, bias of bias is, is like 1.4% higher. It's not, not a big difference. But it turns out like it can be a big difference um, when you sort of think about it or frame the analysis slightly different. Dr. Shoring, may I quickly, <clears throat> again, since you brought up the clinician perspective, so on the uh, plots, right, Alice, if you don't mind pulling them up, I think what was sort of very impressive to me was that I think it is the, not the top one, but in the second row on the right, the most unclustered looking graph, right, the plot. I mean, look at the spread, right? So there, if you look at those individual patients, those individual dots, so that is a human who you think is okay or just about okay, who is very, very not okay, right? Right, so for 
my my father and I've said this before. My father always used to say, I, "You apply statistics are for masses; they're not for the patient in front of you." But but those dots are patients in front of you. So if you think about a few of those dots being people that you potentially had not put on ECMO or had missed or not considered or what have you, right? I mean that that is real world implications, right? Or is that is is my interpretation this hyper basic interpretation of the plot not? Yeah, you're right. Um, and and you know again, the 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 one limitation uh, which I think Dr. Babuena is going to talk about in a second is that because we're not measuring the SpO2 and the ABG exactly synchronously, you know, we we hope in this chest analysis that we we did it was pretty darn close, but there's probably a little bit of lag. So right, like so. In practice, like from the time that you measure the SpO2 to the time that you, you've collected that ABG, there could be some changes. Of course, these are critically ill patients, but you don't expect the changes to be as severe as you're seeing, right? Like, you know, if, if you think this patient is stable, prone, satting 96, staying at 96, you would never expect the true sat to be eight, less than 88 but it is in some cases. So there is a little bit of measurement noise in the fact that these, these are observational data that, that aren't collected exactly simultaneously in a perfectly controlled laboratory setting, but that can explain everything. I it can't explain everything, but again, I. I agree with Viren when we see this dots as people and as the patients that we care for every day, I think, I think it does make a huge difference, but um, that's a great segue for my next question, which is um, if you could share some shortcomings and lessons learned uh, while you were doing your study and while you were analyzing and processing your results. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that uh, Dr. Schoding brought up one of sort of like the overarching um, limitations is that, again, this is real world clinical observational data and there are limitations to that one, one being, of course, the timing um, um, between the uh, pulse oximeter reader, reading and the, and the ABG. Um, and, you know, there have been, um, there is evidence out there that, you know, the longer the time goes, like there can be some difference and like, can that explain in part some of the noise that we were seeing in the, measure, the measurement error, of course, but again, probably unlikely to be the entire, like the entire cause of having so many patients, especially, and especially for that, you will expect that noise to be sort of equal uh, for all patients. And that fact that that measurement bias is higher for a given group is not explained by just that. Um, you know, we did have, you know, we had enough patients in this group to detect a difference, but our sample size is modest. And then I think one of the biggest limitations that we continue to have for all of the studies and other studies that are sort of using um, a, a race and ethnicity as a surrogate for something is that we are using race in this study and in all, all of our studies so far, uh, at least the ones that have come out uh, since uh, uh, Dr. Schoding's study, um, as a surrogate for skin color, right? Like the difference difference. The difference, we know what's wrong with the pulse oximeter. The pulse oximeter has two wavelengths of light, one that is near infrared, one that is visible. And there is a ton of things and multiple things that can interact with your pulse oximeter, anything from nail polish 
to like the the level of like uh like how if you're basically constricted because your patient is uh, on pressors and things like that diabetes number of things melanin is one of those things and so we know how uh, in part part of why um the uh devices work as well in people of darker skin colors and we are using race here with the understanding that like patients that are self-identify or identify as black or hispanic especially for black patients i make a comment about Hispanic. I'm Hispanic myself. Um, uh, after this, that I'd likely to have darker skin colors. That being said, there is, especially for other uh, uh, ethnic groups. So for example, like Hispanic patients, like we are very like racially heterogeneous, like an ancestry heterogeneous, uh, a group of people. And there are people that are my skin color. There are people like my dad is white. And so I think that that is one thing that is a big limitation of how we can, um, we can use this race variable as a surrogate for skin color. Um, you know, I, I think that although we, um, we had data. So another limitation was that we didn't have an adjust. We, we weren't able to do an adjustment for severity of illness, like a traditional adjustment with like a SOFA score. That's one of the things that was done in one of the cohorts for the Shodin study. Um, however, in, in our case, we did have our study design allowed for some degree of severity of illness, right? The, all, all of these patients were ill enough to meet ECMO initiation criteria, which is pretty strict within six hours of of this gas um, uh, being obtained. And so that's a little bit of like our pseudo adjustment, but we did, we were not able to do a formal uh, a traditional adjustment for severity of illness. And then for our, um, uh, another limitation that uh, we have discussed before is that, and, and it's an interesting one and one that I, maybe we can talk a little bit more about is that we didn't have, we don't know which pulse oximeter was used to measure uh, each one of these gases. This is this is worldwide data. We have data from Germany here. We have no idea which pulse oximeter they're using there. Um, however, I will I will put the limitation out there with the caveat of knowing that the the great majority of modern pulse oximeter work with this very similar principle. Like they are not like too many or at all that I know of, of pulse oximeters that are working with like a different design principle. And so it is our inclination to think that this is more of a class effect, right? Like based on the design rather than like, oh, Massimo's pulse oximeter is working. I mean, I mean, maybe that will be become the thing once one of these companies decides to make a better pulse oximeter. But as of right now, the great majority of them work very similarly. Um, and so this this comparison of like whether one brand or the, versus the other one or like, is that something that we were looking at? That was another limitation um, of our design. I love this and I, I had not thought about it. And another thing, do, do you know, did you have data on where the pulse oximeter was? So like forehead, um, earlobe? No. Yeah. Not for our data set. Do you, you guys did any either for uh, the New England Journal of Medicine study, right? Mike? We didn't. Because um... Because that was one of the things that I was curious about. Like when I was reading your paper, I'm like, does that even make a difference? I, I, I don't know. It shouldn't. Yeah. For the for the for this mechanism, for the for, for the melanin mechanism, yeah. um, you know, the one the one potential differing type of pulse oximeter, you know, so most proximeters are clip-on, right? Yeah. So they either clip onto your finger, clip onto your ear, clip out into your nose. There is a group of pulse oximeters that are, you know, stick on. And so those are called uh, reflectance pulse oximeters. So, you know, the, the, light, the light goes in and it reflects back off. So it's possible that that group of pulse oximeters may work differently, uh, but probably, probably it, 
even in that group, it's sort of the same principle, the same issue. Melanin causes light scatter such that the sort of the two wavelengths as they're as they're being recorded, the, the calibration is is such that the, the accuracy is lower in, in, in darkly pigmented patients. So it it yeah, it's it's thought to be a class effect and it wouldn't matter depending on where the pulse oximeter is being measured from. So one of the questions from the audience is kind of is related to this. So often we'll choose different sites, right? Because we can't get good perfusion, the waveform's poor, we try different areas, right? So the question is, is there a difference in patients who are poorly perfused in terms of accuracy of white, black, or Asian patients? Is it worse? Um, I suppose uh, they mean the reading when compared to normal tensor patients, you know, the differences are they more widened, I suppose. So I guess you won't be able to comment on Asian or Hispanic patients, Mike, but would you mind talking about some of those sensitivity analysis that you ran for the new, so yeah. we, for our study, we didn't, but what they did for the earlier study. Yeah. So in our prior study, we had cardiovascular SOFA score as a surrogate. Um, and so we knew if a patient was on a vasopressor um, and presumably those patients have poor skin perfusion um, in general, the mechanism is thought to be different such that, uh, you know, there's, there's some sort of more, more noise um, with lower perfusion, but, but probably it doesn't impact bias in the same way such that on average, you know, the, uh, but that's a bit speculative. Um, so it's, I guess it's not known, you know, if like, if, 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 being darkly pigmented plus being um, having low perfusion is even worse, um, you know, or or is there's an interaction effect? Um, uh, but we weren't able to find that convincingly in any of our work so far. And I suppose a follow up from um, on the same question that they're asking is, I know the answer to this is no, but I'll continue. Is it possible to use any correction factor on black patients, right? And I know it's no for a lot of reasons in the sense that yes, there is, but no, there isn't. So I'll let you handle this. It's that's like the million dollar question. It's like the one question that we can always but can we can bet that we will get in a, one of our talks. Um so I think that there is one like before. So the answer is no, <laughs> but but it's no for for very specific reasons. And so one of them we know about, and and I would, and I think that there is like some exciting work coming around, sort of like further investigating whether or not you can do this or not, and what is is this error always the same? Like is it always you know like three points lower or something like that? But I think like one thing that we also need to consider that is completely separate from this like racial measurement bias is the fact that the device itself, like when you look at this graph, like it is it the, the level of systematic bias or like the device bias at, under the best conditions, like you will have the same, like it, it, it might give you a 96 or it might give you a 99. And so I think that, especially as we're thinking about like, or oh, is there, this device does not work like it's not a hundred percent, even the best case scenario in some lightly pigmented person at all. And so as we're thinking about like a introducing a correction factor into a device that is already, that is already carrying at like a pretty high degree of just noise, like it, it is just not going to be, it's unlikely to be possible. It will be something that will be, a, could be addressed when you're accounting for this level of noise. And then you are like, 
account, like if it's tested in patients of different skin tones, and then you're like accounting for that interaction and that you, your level of noise is your level of noise. Um, but I, I do not think so. And so honestly, when anybody asks, and I have, uh, I, I have definitely care for less patients that they're showing here. But when, when they ask, I'm like, well, what should I do? And I'm like, the, the index of suspicion, especially if your patient has the right clinical picture in their dark skin to get a gas needs to be lower. I mean, like over the past, even just since I have been training over the past five years, like I don't remember getting a gas like myself. I, we, I hear the stories. I used to stick people for gas or patients for gases on the floor all the time. It's not something that we do. I think that we ought to be getting a lot more gases and you'll be surprised how many times you'll be like, hmm, this patient maybe does not look as well as I thought that, that, that they should do. And then you get a gas and then, and then you're like, oh, well, but the pulse ox looks normal. I think that being fought, like being reassured by a single pulse oximetry measurement is something that we cannot longer in good and like in good faith do. And then the other thing is that I think we have like this over-reliance. I mean, I certainly did, especially as a trainee, like a normal pulse oximeter will like send me right back to sleep if my intern calls me in the middle of the night. And I don't, I just don't think that we, we can rely on single measurements like that. We really need to be looking at trends. And there are, at the end of the day, like pulse oximetry is trying to like assess like, like, arterial hypoxemia and then eventually as a marker of like tissue hypoxia. And there are other things that we can be using, we could be using, especially in the critical care setting to, to figure out if a patient is perfusing well enough or not. And so it's, it's unfortunate, but probably more gases. I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, sort of working in this area for a while now, uh, you know, I have a healthier degree of skepticism when I see a pulse oximeter value. And then I also consider, okay, how, how am I using this pulse oximeter value? You know, if, am I using it in my clinic to decide if my COPD patient needs supplemental oxygen, right? Like in a high six setting where this, this, this piece of information is, is really important, uh, you know, I've, I've been using more ABGs. Or in a high stakes situation where like, gosh, should this patient get admitted to the hospital? You know, these high stakes decisions, I'm, I'm putting less weight on the pulse oximeter. And yeah, that's basically what we've been talking about uh, a lot now is just, you know, you, you, you can't over rely on the pulse oximeter. You have to consider the bigger clinical picture. Is it too soon to say lactate? No, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, On that my, quick note. my quick question was, um, you know, what I do also uh, love is in critical care, oftentimes hypoxemia and perfusion, it all gets bundled into this one big sort of clinical gestalt of sickness, right? And I think you guys both hit on this very well, that thinking about your pretest probability is key. And I think we do that with many tests, right? We do it with BNP, we do it with everything, right? But we have taken this sort of parachute approach to saturation. And, and I think, I mean, this is not a great corollary. I think Dr. Washner's group on whether you can extubate people on pressors was a similar thing, right? We just always have done it or not done it, I should say. I think thinking about it a little bit more, like what is my pretest probability that this saturation is going to inform or guide my decision might be the way to think is, on the flip side, as a clinician, I am worried. I mean, are we saying that we A-line every single human that comes in, right? Or stick them 17 times a day. There's, there's practical concerns, right? 
um, from either pain standpoint, discomfort standpoint, or, um, you know, infection standpoint, so, or complication standpoint. So I think it'll be nice to see more data coming out, guys. So strong work. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you brought that point, Dr. Cole, and I think it's a good way to close this. That, you know, as we're trying to figure out how to handle this data and the other, a couple of other very interesting studies have come out since this is the publication of, of our studies. Two of them most recently by uh, a group of Mayo and a group of Emory have actually tied the higher rates of alcohol hypoxemia to worse clinical outcomes. I mean, like not that, you know, I think we can all agree that patients need oxygen, but like now they have like, they are, they have been able to this very robust, like very well measured data looking at like tying out like higher mortality, higher surface scores, higher lactate to having this higher, directly to having higher rates of alcohol hypoxemia. And so as we're thinking of solutions and things to do while we wait, hopefully not for too long for um, uh, some device redesign. I also think it's important to consider that this issue is affecting patients differently. And like some of our most vulnerable patients are gonna be those patients that we have like higher suspicions for this, right? And I might be undergo, or like might be putting out with more pain and more complicated from, from us just trying to, I mean, there are risks. I think we have to weigh in the risks and benefits of it. There are probably higher risk of being a cult, like having hypoxemia than like being a stick for a gas. But at the same time, those risks are not, the complications from that are like not, like not non-existent. And I think we have to think about that too, as well as we're managing our patients and trying to do the best at, uh, for them as we're caring for them with this flawed technology. Yeah, I will encourage people to also put questions in our Q&A box and chat box, but Meanwhile, I, you already alluded to this in terms of like, you're probably gonna be doing some more um, ABGs uh, when, you're, when, when patients um, who are black have um, um, SDO2 like in the 90s. Um, but what else, what else and, and if anything else is gonna change in your clinical practice? And this is for both of you and maybe, and maybe uh, Dr. Valbuena can start. Sure. So I, I am not yet an independent clinical practice because I am still, I, my program is too long, <laughs> but, but I definitely think that, so like, at least in, in surgery, like this is actually why discussion that we were having today with another mentor is that we very often, I think that, I mean, it is so critical for us to be having like that communication with our anesthesiologists and how well our patients are doing. And often we are, um, like doing the, these very long cases and things like that. And I think that I, I will definitely, like we often will like a stop on our tracks if there's any desaturations or things like that. And I think that this is a conversation that we'll probably have, especially as we are doing, when we're doing like thoracic surgeries and things like that. I think that in the ICU as well, like I will be getting a lot more gases. Like that's one thing that I do have control over. And I think that I know I'm no longer reassured either on the floor or in the ICU by like a single normal pulse oximetry, oximetry reading. Um, I will, I do think that there are some interesting implications for like pulmonary critical practice that maybe Dr. Shodin could talk more about that we have seen some interesting like advocacy and legislature over the past couple of years around, especially around uh, uh, oxygen therapy, like maybe like home oxygen and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that this is the tension, you know, we don't really want to do a bunch more ABGs yet, we probably should do at least a few more. Um, and so yeah, for me, like, you know, I was raised and, and so was Dr. Valbuena in a period of time when pulse oximeters were already 
routine practice. And, and we really sort of took, you know, took them for granted and we didn't really appreciate their limitations. I certainly in my training never had um, a lecture where we really sort of leaned in on the limitations of this device and where I ever really appreciated, um, you know, there's sources of inaccuracy. And so, and so I think like, you know, I am part of, I feel like I'm part of a generation of, of clinicians who trained and, and, and didn't, didn't really learn or appreciate that. So, so I think that's sort of critical that like everything we use in medicine has a degree of, you know, imperfection or inaccuracy and sort of like the art of medicine is sort of, you know, taking that data for what it is and, and sort of integrating that with everything else, you know, so, so, you know, that's, I, I think that's sort of a key thing for me, you know, the other, I, I guess, like, um, uh, you know, the other thing that we've been talking about is like, it's very likely that the engineering principles that allow us to have an accurate device in all in patients of all skin tones are already been been discovered it's just a matter of getting that 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 new technology into devices so so i do i i do have a lot of optimism that like eventually we're going to get next generation devices that are going to be more accurate across all patients and ultimately like that's the best solution right like if we have a really highly accurate device that works really well in everyone, then we don't need to have this conversation anymore. You know, so I think like, you know, our group is really sort of pushing that as, as the ultimate solution. And I, and I love that, like the same way, and, I, and I'm a Vance enthusiast, but like the same way that um, uh, mechanical ventilation companies now have like, you can adjust uh, gender, you can adjust height, you can adjust ET tube size, I, I'm hopeful that that the industry can come up with with a pulse oximeter that you can say this patient is black, this patient is Asian, this patient is white. That will be fascinating and fantastic. I think it'll be great for clinical practice. And we are at the top of the hour, so Dr. Paul, do we have any more questions from the audience or from you? No more questions. I just am. I'm really. It's making me think about a lot of work we've done over the last two years. I'm an airway guy, in case you don't know, and I'm now just going back and thinking about how many decisions I made and yeah. did I wait too long? And thanks, guys. I'm going to stay up tonight. But I really, really appreciate this work. Uh, good science, as we say, always is hard to do. And so keep doing it. And uh, hopefully we'll have you again soon on the uh, um, Journal Club next time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. It was our pleasure. And thank you for the audience for tuning in. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us, um, Dr. Schroding and Dr. Balbuena. Thank you so much for your amazing work. And on behalf of CHEST and the CHEST Journal, I would like to thank all of our audience for tuning in. And also, uh, please um, listen to the recording later on and direct questions for both our, our panelists today, they are on Twitter. And um, thank you all so much for coming. Have a good one.